0: The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmoorhead.com. Uh, Mark chapter nine. We're going to be looking at the end of the pa- end of the chapter here, starting in verse thirty-eight. This is what uh, the Holy Spirit writes under the pen of Mark. John said to him, "Teacher." We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, because there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. For it is better to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. "...the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire." Salt is good, but if salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to glorify your name today. And as this is a very tough passage for us to look at. I ask God that you uh, would be opening our hearts to see that uh, we are called to radical discipleship, Lord, and following you uh, is not always easy. And so, God, would you open up our minds and open up our hearts to what your word says here about who we are, about who Jesus is, and what he has done for us, Lord. And it's in, in his matchless name that we ask this. Amen. You know sneaking out at night as a teenager was not even an option for me Uh, and it wasn't because it was against our household you know sort of code of ethics or norms or or whatever it was. Uh, It was because we had an alarm system in the house that would uh, wake up the entire neighborhood if a window had been opened while that thing was armed. And there's really no way around it, because if you armed the alarm at night, uh, it would tell you exactly which windows and which doors were open. So you couldn't just leave it open and then, you know, whatever. And even if it wasn't armed, any time you opened up the front or the back door, it would beep quite loudly three times. And this was all for good reason. The neighborhood that I grew up in increasingly became more uh, and more, uh, well, Less and less safe, that's a better way to put it. Uh, We lived on a corner lot, which uh, was also a city bus stop that would go either north to to Minneapolis or would go south to uh, the Mall of America. And what that meant was that we often had folks on our property who were were not the... most noble of characters, uh, you might say. Our neighborhood was host to uh, some chapters of some of the most notorious gangs of the time. We had uh, GDs and vice lords and the Bloods and the Crips and the, uh, the Asian Bloods. They were all there. And at least a couple of times, these uh, uh, civic organizations uh, would get into little scuffles in front of our... Uh, in front of our house. My parents caught some folks looking through our windows from time to time. Uh, you know, I guess uh, casing the joint, I guess, is what you would almost uh, uh, call it on that. And so why did we have this alarm system? Because it guarded really important things. Our family, our home, and our stuff. And our society places you know, importance on such guardians. You know, if you see any uh, celebrities walking around in public, more than likely they will have guards with them uh, 24-7. After many credible threats, a really prominent pastor in California, everywhere he goes he has armed guards with him. The Pope even has, uh, he has Swedish guards because they are, uh, are they Swedish, is that right? I think they're Swedish. Yeah, they look really cool if you ever see a picture of them. And it's because they're neutral. They don't care about Catholicism or really anything else. Like their point is to be neutral and guard this guy. We would like to hope that our cute fur baby dogs would turn into savages the minute any trouble would come knocking at our door. As people, we flourish when we are safe and when we're secure. And to be safe and secure often takes diligent, guardianship of something. Now, how many of us guard our discipleship, our following Jesus with such seriousness and care? How much thought and how many resources do you give to growing and guarding your faith in Jesus Christ? How much do we as a church put into this? And that's the question that we're looking at in our passage today. The goal for today is to figure out how our individual lives of discipleship, and by discipleship I mean how we follow Jesus practically, and uh, how we learn to uh, love him and be his hands and feet here, and how we live out our individual lives of discipleship affects the church, it affects others around us. And quite simply, it affects our hearts. And through it, we're going to take hold of the importance of guarding discipleship. And so the first thing that we need to do is that we need to guard unity. We need to guard unity. In 1993, the Orlando Magic, uh, who, uh, they're an NBA team if you're, if you're not an NBA uh, fan. They were involved in what we would typically call a... Uh, a bench-clearing brawl, and it all started with two guys who were totally unequally matched. There was one guy's name was Scott Stiles, uh, sorry, Scott Skiles. He was a six-foot-one point guard, so a fairly short point guard, and he decided to get into a squabble with Shaquille O'Neal, who was a full foot taller than him and at least a hundred pounds more. And so as uh, Skiles is trying to throw swings at Shaq, Shaq just got his fist, bonked him on top of the head, (laughs) and all of a sudden everybody is off the bench and there is a massive fight going on on the court. It took a while to break up, uh, but when it was over, no one got ejected. They just went out and kept playing. And why, might you ask, did they not get ejected? Because it didn't happen during a game. It happened during a practice. These guys were all on the same team and came to fist during practice. With such dysfunction and disunity, how do you think the season went that year? Not very good. They finished 500, uh, which is they, they won the same amount of games that they lost and And uh, they missed the playoffs despite having a stellar roster. In order for an organization to succeed in its goals, it needs more than talent. It needs unity. It needs uh, people who have a common purpose and a common goal and who are willing to put aside or... Overlook some of those things in order for the greater good of the organization to succeed. In verse 38 here, the disciples are an awful lot like the 1993 Orlando magic. John specifically doesn't seem to understand the big picture of what Jesus is doing uh, with those who are following him. Look at verse uh, 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. So if you've been with us now for the past few weeks, you should be scratching your head because once again here in chapter 9, Mark shows us another example of how thick headed the disciples are. At least one thing that we can say about them is that they're consistent. Uh, It is almost impossible to tell how much time here was between verses 37 and 38, but this time it's John who shows his arrogance and his ignorance on behalf of the team. Apparently at some point the disciples had noticed that there was some guy who was uh, exercising demons and he was doing it in the power and in the name of, of Jesus, and which is to say that uh, it, he's doing it under the authority of Jesus and he's doing it on behalf of Jesus. And to them this was totally unacceptable. To them... Jesus's power and authority is only delegated to their inner circle. They could not see or imagine that Jesus would give power and authority to anyone else. Even though this guy is exercising demons, the very thing that they could not do here just a few verses ago. Unless we make the error of sitting in judgment of Jesus's disciples We need to find our place in this story by God's grace he shows us that we're really not that much different than John and the other disciples here we value unity we recognize its importance but in so many ways we fail to attain what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 in which he says that we are to make every effort to Keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice he doesn't say create the unity in the Spirit. He says to keep it. It's already ours, but it's our job to maintain it. It's our job to keep it and cultivate it. And one way we do this is on a macro level. We fail to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit when we hold our denominational flavor as paramount. We are a Baptist church. We are a Baptist church because we have been led in that way uh, by how we see scripture laid out, uh, by our convictions in that. So we hold to Baptist distinctives, and we're proud of our Baptist identity. We're not going to be giving that up, and we're certainly not going to hide it or shy away from it. But that doesn't mean that we necessarily look to every other denomination as if everything that they teach is heretical. We might not agree with the presbyterians on baptism we might not agree with the lutherans on the lord's supper but those are second tier non-salvific issues do they hold to the bible as the word of god as inerrant and inspired word of god do they hold to the holy trinity as god the father god the son and god the holy spirit uh, existing as one entity simultaneously do they hold to the virgin birth virgin birth of Jesus do they believe that he was sinless in his thoughts and his words and in his actions do they believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate in order to atone for the sins of those who would trust in him if so hey we're in good company we can have fellowship with one another John, who is the antagonist here, who says, "Hey, these guys—they're not with us. Uh, what are you going to do about this?" Would later go on to write in First John chapter one, "What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ." So, in other words, John is saying here, "Yeah, we walked the streets with Jesus." We, we touched him with our hands. We could smell him. We, we, we saw him with our eyes. And even though you didn't do that, if you're trusting in what we're saying as his apostles, then we can be brothers and sisters. We have fellowship together. And that's what it's about, a bond of the gospel. And Jesus responds to John now in verse 39 by saying, Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. So just because they aren't in the exclusive club, that doesn't mean that they are not doing Jesus' work on his behalf. When Jesus cast out the legion of demons that were in the possessed man at the lake of Gennesaret, uh, if you remember that story, the man was so grateful for what Jesus did for him that he wanted to go with Jesus and said, Let me be one of your disciples. And what does Jesus say? He says, No, 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 no. You need to go into your town. You need to go to your people and tell about me. He's not one of the apostles, one of the disciples. But he's doing Jesus' work. When the woman at the well came to the understanding of who Jesus was, notice Jesus didn't say, hey, why don't you come along with me and these guys and a couple of the women, and we're going to travel through here and you're going to learn from me. But what does, he, what does he do? He sends her back into Samaria so that she can go and do Jesus' work on his behalf There. And so here, uh, we love our church, but we praise God for Trio. We love our church, but we praise God for First Presbyterian. We praise God for Zion. We praise God that He is even right now raising up a new church plant in town. This is not a competition, folks. This is the kingdom of God, and its mission is that the gospel would go out into the uttermost parts of Caneba County, Minnesota, the country, and throughout the world. That's one reason why I absolutely love this curriculum that we're doing for 12 months for truth. Uh, Some of these guys on these videos are Baptists. Some of them are Presbyterian. I think one of them is even an Anglican. Uh, There's there's E-Free guys. It's refreshing to see all of these people from various backgrounds that are bonded together in the truth of the gospel that are in love with Jesus and want the world to know who he is. So if we find ourselves like the disciples here and minimizing or ignoring unity because of our commitment to a certain uh, flavor of Christianity, we need to repent of that. We need to guard unity. And second, we should guard others. We should guard others. There's this relatively new show on Fox uh, that was modeled after the show called Lego Masters. It's called uh, Domino Masters. And on every episode, there is a theme, and it features uh, a few teams that are obsessed with dominoes. And not the game of dominoes, where you're putting it on the table and you're matching things up. I think that's how, does anybody play dominoes anymore? Okay, Amber, okay, a few of you do, okay. But this is where you are stacking dominoes, and then it has sort of that domino effect where it knocks them over. And so there's, there is the competition in each episode where they're given a theme. It could be sports, it could be, you know, recreation, whatever it is. And they are to make these huge domino things based on that theme. And it is amazing that just with With uh, uh, one little push, it can just be so satisfying to watch all these dominoes falling and going into this pattern. And when we step back and think about such large domino runs, um, it is unbelievable that they were actually set up in the first place with the slightest shake of the hand putting it down could ruin the entire thing. Putting it in the wrong place could change the... Well, it wouldn't change the physics, but the physics itself would change so that they don't match up quite right, and then the rest of the thing is, is doomed. But perhaps the, the most amazing thing is that it just takes one little tap and all these dominoes come falling down. Thousands upon thousands of dominoes falling. Because we live in such a highly individualistic society, we often tend to forget how our lives are like a domino run. Our actions and our words affect people, which in turn affects more for good or for evil. You matter. And how you interact with people matters. If you belong to the kingdom of God, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, your mission is to make Jesus know known and to build others up in that and not tear them down. In verse 42, Jesus tells his disciples that this isn't something that they should... Uh, uh, it isn't just something that they should consider doing. This is of most importance. To tear someone down, especially a, a believer, a brother and sister in Christ, has dire consequences. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, well, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. Now, when Jesus talks about these these little ones here, he is not talking about children. Jesus, and then also John in in his letters, uses this term little children or little ones to describe average, ordinary believers. He is describing believers like you, and he is describing believers like me. People who are desperately dependent on him and are bonded to him in faith. This term fall away here also means to cause the sin, to stumble. And Jesus says, whoever would cause one of these types of people to fall away, it'd be better to have a heavy millstone around your neck and thrown into the sea. Now, ancient Israel was an agrarian society. And grains were a really important crop. Uh, And in order to grind the grain, they had this really large stone, and I think I have a picture of that up there, that would be rolled on this lower kind of bowl. So the grains would be put in the base, and then this, this round thing would be going around and around. But it was so heavy that humans could not push this. An average millstone was about 3,300 pounds. So instead, they needed a, a beast of burden, a donkey, a, a, an ox or something, to walk in circles in order to crush this grain that they, uh, that they needed to, uh, to use to produce food, bread, whatever it is. And further, the Jews dreaded drowning they looked at water as a an illustration of chaos and terror in fact they even shied away from having a a navy for a long long time and it's understandable drowning would be a terrible way to die so understand the seriousness of what jesus is saying here whoever causes one of these little ones to have their faith destroyed, to fall into sin. It would be better if you were tied up to something like this and thrown into Lake Superior. Now I fear many of us don't take Jesus seriously on that which would you rather do you can answer this quietly to yourself would you rather cause someone to fall away from the faith stumble on their faith whatever and then live to a great old age and die well and whatever after that or would you rather have a large piece of concrete tied to your legs or your feet or whatever and thrown into lake superior and never having caused anyone to fall away from Jesus Christ? Jesus says the answer is simple. It's better to die with a clean conscience than to die at an old age defiled and going to hell. The decision, the question is, do you believe this? You are a domino, and how you fall could mean life or death to the people you encounter. So you need to guard others as well. So working then from the outside in, we come to our final point, and that is that we need to guard ourselves. We need to guard ourselves. There's an individualistic aspect of this. And as Jesus moves into his teaching, with the disciples about the necessity, he moves into the necessity of your own soul, you might think that he couldn't get any more radical than he just did by talking about tying a millstone to your neck and throwing you out into the sea. But he does here in verses 43 through 50. And Jesus is clear that he wants radical commitment to fighting personal sin. Radical commitment to fighting personal sin. Look what he says here in verse 43. If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. The unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So admittedly now, this passage sounds crazy. And you might approach this with the presupposition that uh, Jesus' disciples obviously didn't take him seriously because I mean, none of them were cutting off any, any limbs or any, any parts of their bodies. Uh, further, if we were to look into the early church, we only know of one church father among many. His name was Origen who, who castrated himself uh, based on Jesus' uh, teaching here in, in Matthew chapter 19. But they did take Jesus seriously here. And we ought to too. Jesus is not speaking literalistically here. He's using a, a literary device called a hyperbole. And a hyperbole is a, is a gross exaggeration in order to prove a point. And there are many different viewpoints on why Jesus used these bodily metaphors. He, uh, but I think of, of, of all of these different theories, the one that seems to make sense is that to... Uh, cut off your hand is to represent those those things that you do. Those are your actions. If what you're doing is causing you to sin, get rid of it. The feet are the things that take you to the places that you go. If your feet are leading you to the place that by which you are going to stumble, by which you are going to sin, well, man, we need to get rid of that particular thing. The eyes, well, then we could easily see then. it's It's what it is what we take in, what we allow ourselves to, to see. Maybe some of you growing up in Sunday school uh, once sang that song, be careful little eyes what you see for the Father up above is looking down with love. So be careful little eyes what you see and you could put the hand in there, you could put the foot in there. Any of those sorts of things that we need to Be careful. And with that in mind, it seems logical then that Jesus would say, whatever you do that causes you to sin, get rid of it. Wherever you go that causes you to sin, don't go there. Whatever you see that is causing you to sin, stop looking at it. Get away. These may not be bad things, but they are things that don't help you to be what God wants you to be. Get rid of them. It's exactly what Paul is talking about in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 when he says, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. Now that word uh, hindrance is, uh, another word for that is weight. And he's talking about a race here. And if you've ever tried running with weights before, it's really hard. Weights aren't bad. But if they're getting in the way of you running to the goal, cut those weights off so you can run. In all of these verses here, Jesus says that we need to get rid of these things because it's better to enter heaven. It's better to enter the kingdom of God without them than to go into hell with them. I don't know what hell would be like, but it certainly seems in vogue today to talk about it being less than what it probably is. Some of us may trivialize it by saying, well, my life is a living hell. Well, when we went through that particular thing, we went to hell and back. I don't know what hell is like, but what Jesus says here, it's doubtful that any of us have even gone through a sliver of what hell would be like. If we truly knew what hell was like, None of us would ever tell anyone we don't like to go there. The word hell comes from the Greek word Gehenna, which is, uh, comes from the Hebrew word himon And himon was this deep ravine that was located in the southwest part of Jerusalem uh, during the reigns of King Ahaz and Manasseh. That's where people would go down to worship the pagan god Molech. And it was the chief place where children were sacrificed in order to appease this god Molech. And this was uh, uh, the prophet Jeremiah decried this. He didn't want this to happen. And then finally under King Josiah's reign, he finally stopped the the process and, and the worship there. And he turned that valley rather into a garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. And not only was it a garbage dump, but it was also the place where they would bring animal carcasses and the bodies of criminals who were killed. This was a place of judgment. In order to keep the dump from overfilling, there was a constant fire that was unquenched, burning this garbage up. And you can imagine that if there were rotting bodies of animals and human criminals, that the worms that were there would would be pretty busy as well. It's a literal picture of what Isaiah would have prophesied all the way back in Isaiah chapter 66 when he said, As they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. This is God speaking through Isaiah. For their worm will never die, their fire will never go out. They will be a horror to all humanity. Now, I've been to the dump here in Mora a time or two, Uh, I've been all over the property of Mount Mora, whether it be uh, uh, putting some uh, yard waste somewhere or going all the way to the back with with some demo stuff. It's not a place that I would want to set up a lawn chair and bring some lemonade. It smells, it's dirty. There are a lot of flies. So thankfully, I can just leave my stuff there and I can get out. Gehenna would have been 10,000 times worse than that. So you have constant burning of garbage. Dead bodies rotting around you. And that's just a metaphor. And typically, metaphors are watered-down versions of what reality would actually be. And Jesus is saying that it would be better for you and me to be done with these things to get rid of them, then go there. And Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3. He says, therefore, put to death what is in your earthly nature. He's not saying just simply get rid of it. He's saying, kill it. Get rid of it. Peter would go on to say in in 1 Peter 4, He would say that there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, lawless idolatry, meaning that, you know, for up to this point, you've already done enough sinning. Now it's time to move on to the grace of God. When the garbage has been placed and the bodies are disposed of and him on, there is no going back. And Jesus here is clear. Get Rid of it, guard yourself. Now this is serious stuff. This morning's message isn't one of roses and tulips, unless they've wilted and are going to the dump. Um, Jesus is asking some really radical things of you today. Things that perhaps you've never considered. And I have for the past three days, tried to figure out how I can land, land this plane. Cause usually I like to figure out some sort of cute ending in order to get us to be where we need to be. And I don't have that. All I can tell you is who this message is for. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. He's talking to those who are following him. Those who have trusted in him for their eternal salvation. Realizing that there's nothing that they can do to escape this body of sin and this life of sin. So what do they do? They cling to Jesus. We can't cut off our meta- metaphorical hands or feet or, or gouge out our metaphorical eyes enough. We need Jesus. Jesus. We need him every hour to save us from ourselves. And following Jesus is not easy. And maybe you're here today and you're just checking this Jesus thing out. You've never uh, really put your faith in him. Well, this message isn't really for you. This is for those who have trusted in him. Your message today is that Jesus tells you that he loves you That you are far from him in your sin. That there's no way that you in your own, on your own, can come to him. You can do all these things. You can guard the church. You can guard unity. You can guard uh, others. You can guard yourself. And you'll still go to hell. There's not enough guardianship. There's no ADT that you can get hooked into your spiritual house that will protect you enough. You need Jesus. And so, he offers you himself today. He went and li- he came and he lived a perfect life so that by trusting in him, his perfection would be transferred to you and your sin would be given to him. And he went to the cross so that he would take the punishment that you deserved. Three days later, he rose from the dead to show that he indeed is victorious over that. And by trusting in that, You can be saved from your sin. And you can have a Savior, and you can look at this now and say, there is no way that I'm strong enough to guard all these things. But you know what? We have one that is. And so we trust in him. So whatever you're doing today, wherever you are, whatever you're involved with, Jesus is telling you today, trust in me. Make every effort to guard the church, guard others, guard yourselves. But ultimately, you can do that only by trusting in me. Let's pray. Father, um, this is not an easy message, and Lord, you call us to messages like this, though, every so often. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the grace that we need in order to be what we cannot be on our own. Father, would you help us by the power of your Spirit To guard our own souls. To love others enough to guard them. And to care about the community of the church by which we would preserve unity. God, we ask that you would do this in light of your grace and in your goodness. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen.